All right, so as you just heard, that sounds loud. Maybe it's not, I don't know. I can, but as you heard, we're going to be looking at Revelation this morning, just chapter one and not the whole chapter. And for those of you who haven't been here, we've been looking at a series in Philippians and just really reveling, enjoying, worshiping God who is humble in Christ. And uh, so kind of to, to, as a compa- companion to those messages, we're going to take one week this, this Sunday to look at Christ Jesus in his glory. And this is a glorious text, a glorious passage in Revelation chapter 1, a picture of Jesus. So I'm going to read Revelation, the whole chapter, just to set the context. And the, the sermon will only come from Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. So let me read the text first. So Revelation chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 20. I'll be reading the ESV. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me open just by praying briefly. Lord God, we praise you. You are glorious. And there is none like you. We ask that you would be seen more clearly this morning, that you would enable us through your spirit, me as I speak, I hope, Lord, to be faithful to your word. And we ask for your spirit's help to see you and to worship you. We again say, Lord, you are good. You are glorious. We give you praise. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for anybody who knows me, and particularly people in, the, in my 242 group, know that I'm a bit of a penny pincher. I don't like to spend money. I, I feel at home here in a Mennonite church, you know, Mennonite brethren. But uh, five years ago, my, my brother-in-law, he likes to take trips. He's a, kind of a, an amateur photographer, and he takes pictures of a lot of landscapes. But he invited us to go on a trip with him to Glacier National Park in Banff. That's up in northern U.S. and also in Canada. And I'd seen his pictures, and they really are pretty. But I, I asked him, how much is it going to cost? At this point, it was my wife, MJ, and I. And MJ was pregnant, but not that far along. In hindsight, farther along than we probably shouldn't have gone. But um, So I, I was considering, okay, how much is it going to cost? And as we talked, I knew that it was going to be a week's expense or so. Plus, to get to that national park, if you drive, it takes about 24 hours. And so that's not an insignificant time of travel. So I'm doing this, this consideration. And I, just, I wish you could see the pictures. If you haven't seen pictures of Banff or Glacier National Park, just the, the mountains are amazing. There, there's snow-capped mountains, all the things you want to see. The, the green trees on the slopes, the crystal clear waters. You look at it and it is just like, this is majestic. This is amazing. And so I saw those pictures and somehow, considering the cost, I said, okay, let's do it. And so we went, and let me tell you, it was worth it. It was, it was worth it. I am a penny pincher, but spending almost two, four days in a car, listening to some bad music with my brother-in-law, and spending the money it, it took to get there was totally worth it. So, not only that, I just want to tell you that it, it's worth it. It's worth the money. If you have... It ended up being like 300 bucks a person. It wasn't much. It seemed like a lot at the time. Uh, but if you have that kind of money and you have the time, I would recommend to you, take your family, take yourself, go to Glacier National Park, hike in the mountains, and see those beautiful scenes. So, the book of Revelation. It was written to a people... Faced with counting the cost. I've only preached like twice here. I cry almost every time I preach, so just get used to it. But it, it was, it was fa- uh, written to a people faced with counting the cost of following Jesus in a world that was set against him. And so even though Revelation, it does seem crazy, as uh, yeah, whoever announced that I was going to come up and speak, preach about revelation that's just kind of like oh goodness you know revelation does get 
it gets difficult to interpret. It's a complicated book. It seems complicated. And it uses language that for many of us is not everyday language. But the overall message is very simple and it's very clear. Jesus is worthy. So it was written to strengthen the saints in the first century that they would consider the real cost of following Jesus in this broken world. But the incalculable worth of reigning with him. So in particular, this morning, we're just going to look at the first chapter. But I want to ask the question, what will strengthen the Christian to walk faithfully with Jesus? What will strengthen the Christian to walk faithfully with Jesus? And I I do want to ask you, if, if you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, just ask yourself as we look at this picture of Christ Jesus, Is what I'm living for worthy? So, you know, we made some jokes about starting a new year. Some of us like to do New Year's resolutions. Some of us are just considering, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with this year? And so I really want this, this picture of Jesus, to influence, to dictate, to to help us make decisions in how we're going to live our life. And I know that it will. So first we see John's exhortation in verses 9 to 11 where he says essentially to the churches, see Jesus, look to Jesus. In verses 12 to 16 we see, we see Jesus in his glory. And then in verses 17 to 20 we see Jesus in his grace. So let's look at the first few verses. Verses 9 to 11. So I've already read them but in these first three verses we're introduced to the author, the human author of the book, and the recipients, the people who he was writing to. So let's start with the recipients, the people who received the letter. It was the seven churches in Asia. So the introduction of the book, it shows that it's the Asia Minor, first century Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey, and it was these cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Minas Tirith, Mordor. No, I'm just kidding. So the, These sometimes sound like they're strange cities out of a strange land. Those were from Lord of the Rings, the last two. But these are real historical cities with real people in them. This was written to an actual people with real problems. Just like us. I've got a cold too, so sorry. But it's written to real people. We need to remember that. And the author, John, he was writing to them from Patmos... John, we, it's, it's debated who this John actually was. I think it was um, the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. The same John we read about in, or who penned the Gospel of John. But he's, he's probably old now. This is at, um, late 90s, perhaps, when he wrote this. And he's writing to the seven churches from exile on this island, Patmos. And he tells them that he is their brother and partner in three things. He says, I'm your brother and partner. And these three things help us get a con- an idea for the context of these early churches. Three things are, I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So let's just look at these each one by one. So first, the tribulation. One way to translate the word is pressure. These, these oh, also I want to mention, these three things we, we see are are happening, they are realities for the Christians because of their union with Christ. 
It's because they are in Jesus. They are theirs in Christ. The tribulation is theirs because they are in Christ. The kingdom is theirs because they're in Christ. And the patient endurance is theirs in Christ. So, first the tribulation, pressure. Um, These Christians in the first century Asia Minor, they faced all kinds of pressures that came particularly because they were connected to Jesus, to this Christ. Um, John himself, we've already read, because of his connection to Christ and his faithfulness to Jesus in proclaiming the truth of his word and living faithfully as his disciple has now found himself exiled on island Patmos, suffering for the gospel. So pressure, all kinds of pressures. These pressures I'm going to list come through the letters to the churches. This is what they face. They face pressure to adopt kind of a substitute Christianity. Christianity was taught by false teachers that appealed to human desires and human understanding and just sounded better to the world. They had pressure to adopt that kind of Christianity. They had pressure to live just for the world. It's pleasures, it's pride, it's comfort, it's stuff, it's successes. They had pressure to coast or compromise their faith. And I think this is probably chief in John's mind. There was pressure to deny or abandon Jesus because of the great cost of following him. So in the, it was a highly religious world that they lived in. And every aspect of their daily life would have involved religious stuff, religious rituals, uh, eating a meal at a friend's home, doing a business deal, going to a sporting event. All of these things were steeped in religious rites. And so for Christians... You couldn't do any of these things without, one, it becoming clear that you're a Christian, and two, receiving possible pressure to worship some pagan deity or to give glory to the emperor as God. And so for Christians, it meant pressure. It meant loss. It meant persecution if they refused to do those things. And fortunately, that's not the only thing. He says that he's a partner and brother in. He says he's their partner in the pressure, but also their partner and brother in the kingdom. So as we've sung this morning, as uh, we've heard, Jesus Christ's very name entails a kingdom. He is a king. He is the Messiah. And those who are connected to him by faith are a part of that kingdom. He is the king of kings who would rule in justice and righteousness over a kingdom of priests who would live their lives in praise to God in a perfect kingdom. They were partners in that kingdom But the kingdom had not yet fully arrived. And so that's why there's this pressure. There's a world against the king and his people and against God. And so they they receive and are um, recipients of this pressure. And so that also means the third thing, patient endurance. So third, they're also partners with him in patient endurance. Waiting patiently, enduring patiently, like you're running a race for that kingdom to come. And it's not the kind of sitting around waiting, it's the active waiting, kind of like running, running a long distance marathon. Even if you know you're going to win, you still need to run hard for a long period of time. And that's what they're doing. They know Christ has won, but they need to run that race. So again, John is their partner in the kingdom, the patient endurance, and he's lived faithfully and it's brought him suffering. I think it's encouraging to them to hear that the author, probably the apostle, is calling them his, their brother. He says, I'm your brother. I'm with you in this. We are kin in this kingdom. But 
Also, it's a reminder that he suffered for it. He's in exile because of his faithfulness to the word. And this is a side note. I'm not sure about this, but I think these things are connected. As John is faithful and obedient to God, he receives this revelation from God. As he's in the path of obedience, he sees God. God makes himself known to him. So I think that that's true for us as well. As we want to obey God, as we seek to obey him in life and walk faithfully with him, he makes himself known to us. But, so he hears this voice behind him and he turns to look at what he sees. And and he hears this voice and he says, the voice says, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And so this voice, whether it's the voice of an angel or God's own voice, the, the will of God is being displayed through this voice. What God wants for his people to see is being expressed through his angelic being or through God's own voice. So what does God want his people to see? His churches, enduring pressures and trials, patiently waiting for the kingdom. What does he want written in the book? He is to write down what he sees. And what does he see? If you just look at verse 12, I turned to see the voice and what he sees is this vision. I saw seven golden lampstands. And he goes on to describe this vision of Jesus. What he sees, what God wants his people to see for their faithfulness is himself. He wants them to see Jesus. Finally, at the very end, to make it abundantly clear, after seeing Jesus exalted, he falls at his feet as though dead. And Jesus himself, the risen king, tells him, Write down what you've seen. This is what he wants his people to to see, is himself. And so how will his church faithfully and patiently endure as they wait for that kingdom? What will strengthen them? What will strengthen us to hold fast to Jesus in trials, in suffering, in temptation? Jesus, seeing him for who he is, seeing him for what what he's done and what he will do, knowing him for who he is, is what will strengthen his people. And so that's why the main idea, I I might change it a little bit instead of the fuel. That sounds very ultimate. I do want to say seeing Jesus is fuel for faithfulness. Seeing Jesus is fuel for faithfulness. So, in fact, as you look at the letters to the seven churches, each letter begins with an attribute mostly taken from this vision or somewhere else in chapter 1. He wants his people to see who he is, what he's like, what he will do, what his attributes are. And that is what he wants them to know in order to be faithful. And so first, this means of all things that we could tell someone we know who's suffering or tempted, a brother or sister, or something that we would look to ourselves in order to receive strength, to add resolve. What we chiefly need is to see Jesus for who he is. To see him with the eyes of faith, all that he is and all that he will be and do for his people. So it's, it's not looking inside ourselves. That's kind of a popular idea today. It's not looking inside of ourselves to have strength. It's looking up to him. It's not looking to some worldly book or strategy or method. It's looking to him and his strength. So secondly, and this is, uh, yeah, secondly, this is more personal. Thank you. I just want to say thank you to many of you. So as we've been here a few years, I think, at this church recently, 
particularly in our 242 group, in relationships we have here on Sunday, in relationships with people here at church. I want to say thank you because there's been multiple people who we get to know who when trials come, when suffering has come, when loss has come, they look to Jesus. And I need that. And you need that. So we as a church, we need that. Yeah. So I just, I do pray, Lord, have mercy on us if we say we follow Jesus. But then we don't live like it. That our walk doesn't at all follow what we say we believe. And we all know that's true. That's true for some people who say they follow Jesus. And that hurts us. That confuses us. It distracts us. But when you see people in trial, in loss, who say, I trust him. I'm going to walk with him. He's faithful. He's good. We need that. So I want to encourage you, if you're not involved in a 242 group or a Bible study or a discipleship group with someone else, I'd encourage you to get involved in one because it's as we're more deeply connected with people than just a gathering on a Sunday morning. As good as that is, it's in those times that we get to know each other. We get to know what we're going through. And you get the blessing and the gift that will strengthen you for faithfulness of seeing another Christian walk through trial. So, we can confidently turn our eyes to Jesus because of who he is. Which is what John glimpses in this vision. He glimpses, he sees who Jesus is in his exalted glory. And that's why we can confidently look to him and know he will strengthen. He is strong and good. There's an old hymn, um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Many of us know it. And look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I don't know if this, this hymn was written based on these verses, but what we see in verses 12 to 16 is his glory. And what we see in verses 17 to 20 is his grace. And so that's what we look to, and that's what the first century church was told to see. So, this vision, before we look at it, it's filled with apocalyptic imagery. A lot of those strange, revelation-type words that seem strange to us. But they are full of meaning. And we know it's imagery. We know that this isn't exactly what Jesus looks like physically, because John uses the word like repeatedly. He says he sees one like, with eyes like, and hair like. He's using imagery to describe this exalted being, the Lord Jesus, as best he can. And before we look at these images uh, specifically, the overall picture that he sees is unmistakable. It's clear. The exalted King Jesus in glory. A judge, matchless in power, wisdom, and might. Jesus Christ, the faithful prophet, the great high priest, and the righteous king clear picture. And before we, we consider the last thing, 
um, I think that it's really helpful as I look at these attributes of God, the attributes of Jesus in exalted glory, to compare them to kings and rulers of earth who we are tempted to fear or even worship. I think that's what the first century church is being exhorted to do as they are tempted to be afraid of or even give worship to some earthly king, some being. And Jesus is saying, no, look at me and who I am. And so as we go through these attributes, I want to compare them to some, some attribute of some ruler in our earthly kingdoms. So what does he see? He turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. And first he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. And so we'll get to the lampstands later. It's one of the images that Jesus himself actually explains in this vision. But he sees one like a son of man standing among the lampstands. This is a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel 7, I'm just going to read uh, verses, I think it's 13 and 14. Daniel saw a vision as well. And he saw the clouds of heaven... And there was one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in contrast, and I kind of did this for fun, I'm going to talk about Alexander the Great. But I googled People with the name great. There were hundreds of them. I didn't know half of them. So that's, that's greatness in our human kingdoms. I didn't know many of the names. That could be my fault as a student of history. But many greats in history we don't even know. Alexander the Great, for example, he built one of the greatest empires in human history. And he died at a very young age and the kingdom fell apart a few years later. Again, Jesus' kingdom is one that is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, a kingdom of all peoples, nations, and languages that serve him for all eternity. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. We see that in verse 13. These two articles of clothing are found in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4. It's describing the, the priest. And even the, the image of Jesus walking among the lampstands is a picture of the Old Testament temple. The high priest would go in, and, or not the high priest, a priest would go in and trim the wicks, take care of the candles. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the one, this, this golden sash around his chest, he's the one who this is pointing to as the great high priest. Many rulers throughout history, they've pulled their people, I, this is many rulers, out of physical... uh, poorness, poverty, and darkness only to plunge their people into spiritual darkness and depravity and poverty. There's only one king who after making purification for sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only one king can deal with sin. Next, the hairs of his head were white like wool like snow. White hair in the scriptures, particularly if you look at Proverbs 16, 31, they're associated with wisdom. And we all know that. Um, But his hair is not just salt and pepper. It's not gray. It says it's white like snow, like wool. It's pure white. And this is pointing to his matchless wisdom. 
There's nothing that he does not know. There's, he knows all things. A, a white, a, white hair is often, you get it, usually through age. And you gain a lot of experience through age. This is pointing to his agelessness. He knows all things because he's always existed. There's nothing that he does not know. Even Solomon's wisdom had limits. But Christ does not. His eyes were like a flame of fire, or like flames of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now, I'm not really very sure about the, the feet of burnished bronze. I, they are paired together. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 20 and 23, the letter to the church in Thyatira, these two images are, are used in his introduction to that letter. And he goes on to say in that letter that Jesus is one who ju- justly judges the false prophet Jezebel and all who follow her and one who searches mind and heart. It's verse 20 and 23. Jesus, his gaze is penetrating. It sees even the thoughts and attitudes of hearts. Um, Xi Jinping, if you're not aware, the current ruler in China, has built one of the greatest surveillance systems in history. And he does it so that he can monitor his own people every aspect of their lives, and also monitor threats to his kingdom. But he cannot see the heart. Jesus, eyes see all, penetrating even the thoughts and attitudes of the human heart. And to him, every human, every human heart will give account. His voice was like the roar of many waters in verse 15. We've, we've all seen debates in, in current times, political debates, where it's he who yells the loudest has the last word. You know, people just speak loudly over one another. And if you can yell more loudly than your opponent, people will listen to you. Well, here we see that Jesus' voice is like the, the crashing waves of the Niagara. Jesus' voice drowns out all other sounds, all other voices. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. So a sword is a weapon of war, and it's found in at least two other occasions in the book of Revelation. We read about this sword. In the letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says that he will war against the unrepentant with the sword of his mouth. And that's just a warning for us to remember. He's talking to a church. So simply by gathering in a church does not mean that Jesus will not war against a person with the sword of his mouth, which is truth. His word is truth. It, it entails people who are repentant, who walk with him in repentance. And so those who are unrepentant in that church, he says he will war against with the sword of his mouth. Chapter 2, verse 16. And on the last day, Jesus will return with a sharp sword, the same two-edged sword coming from his mouth, with which to strike down the nations. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Jesus is the one who executes judgment with the word of his mouth, which is truth. For all who repent, he offers life. But for those who remain unrepentant of their sins, there is only just judgment that remains. And so finally, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Many cultures throughout history have seen the sun in its glory, in its brightness, its light, its heat, and they worship it. And here we read, not his whole body, his face alone, shines like the sun at full strength. This points to his glory. He is truly glorious. He is majestic, blindingly so. 
So without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus wants his people to know that he alone is the judge to whom all will give account. His verdict alone matters. He is the king. He is righteous. He will rule. He will reign and he does. He is the king of all power, authority, wisdom and might. And in Revelation 1, it says that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. That's what he wants his people to see and know about. And this is a glorious picture. So notice, it's not just Jesus' kindness, which is true. Jesus is kind. We've taken three weeks in, in uh, Philippians to see Jesus' humility, his love. But it's not just his closeness, his likeness to us that he wants his people to see, to know and be, to be strengthened. It's his glory, his power, his majesty, and his just judgment. He is the friend of sinners. We know that from Scripture. He called his disciples friends in John 15, I think 15. That included Thomas. And then when Thomas saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, this is not even the Lord Jesus exalted in glory, just the resurrected Lord Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. Uh, When we were overseas, we were part of an international church and had most half of it or so was African and I know that their style of worship and way of doing church has some differences. And so I asked one of the women once, I said, what are, what are some differences in the way that we, we have church here and the way you, you do it back home? And I, didn't, I expected her to say some other things, about music maybe, or dress, or something else. But she said, you know, when the leaders of this church pray, they pray as if they're talking to, to a peer, to someone like them, to a friend. And she didn't mean that as an insult. And it's not wrong. But she said when when our leaders back home pray, they pray to someone who is high, someone who is holy and exalted, someone who's different than us. That's the basic idea of what she said. I don't remember word for word. But we, we do know, and it is true, he is our friend. The Lord Jesus is a friend of sinners. But he is high and holy. He is exalted. He is glorious. So I, I hope that we, we believe that and that we live in that way and that we worship God in that way. And it's really His majesty and His glory that make His grace toward us so amazing. And so that's next what He tells His church to look to. After seeing Him in His glory is also to see His grace. So John, we pick up now in verse 17, when he saw Him, what happened? The same reaction I was just reading this morning in Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1 or Job chapter 42 or Isaiah chapter 6 or Exodus chapter 3. When people see God, they fall at his feet in worship. John has fallen at his feet as though dead. This is the only right response to seeing God for who he is, for any sinner. So John, we know, he's having this vision, but he's not yet in resurrected glory. This is humbling. In some sense, it's awful. In the, you know, we know the word awesome. It's also awful to be in the presence of God as a sinner. He's fallen at his feet as though dead. He deserves just judgment of this king. The blinding glory of this king could incinerate and does incinerate sin. And yet, what does Jesus do? He's not only glorious... He is glorious, but he's also gracious. So what does he do with his power? 
I think Pastor Aaron said something like this, but we need to remember and look at the world. How does the world use power? And then compare that. How does this king, this glorious king with none like him, how does he use his power? He uses it for others. So John, John's at his feet as though dead. And Jesus speaks words of comfort to him, not judgment. He says to him, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Now, I might be pushing the text a little bit too far. But if you imagine, if Jesus is standing in glory and John is at his feet, how can Jesus lay his right hand on John? He has to stoop. I mean, again, I might be pushing this text too far, but we just looked at Philippians. This is who God is. God is humble. As hard as that is to believe. God stoops low to save sinners. And I think that's what he does. I think that's what we should see. He speaks to him, fear not. And actually, as I was reading this text, originally I'm thinking about these Christians enduring trials, temptation, and Caesar or Lord... All of these enemies, and I think he said, I thought he was saying, Don't be afraid, I'm with you. I will comfort you, I will uphold you. But really, I think he's afraid of Jesus. He's just seen the exalted king and fallen at his feet. It's not the world in this case that I think he's telling him not to fear. He's saying, Don't be afraid. I know you've seen me in glory, but I'm not against you, I'm for you. He says, fear not. Why? His foreness. He says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. So this, the, the implication of this statement is that death not only has no hold on Jesus, but that Jesus has complete control over death. He holds the keys. That's a great comfort to his people. A great comfort to John as he knows that he is a sinner who deserves only God's justice. And yet Jesus here speaks words of comfort and grace to him. I'm not against you, but for you. He's not only glorious, but he is gracious. So he says, write these things. Write down this vision. Write down what you've seen. And he also says to write down those that are and those that are to take place after this. John's to record this vision and the rest of the book of Revelation that we now have. For, his pe- for Jesus' people. And then we get an explanation of one of the images, and that's why I saved it for the end. The explanation is of the seven stars that are in his right hand and the seven golden lampstands that he was walking among. The seven stars, he says, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is the Son of Man, the one like the Son of Man, who walks among, he walks in the midst of those lampstands, which are the churches. He tends to the lampstands. And he holds the seven stars that are the the angels of the seven churches in his right hand. Uh, One commentator said that the right hand uh, represents the hand of authority and honor. What is in his hand is his possession and has his protection. So he is among his people. This king of glory is among his people. And he is for his people. 
He cares for his people, provides for his people, protects his people. Jesus is with his church. And I don't know to what extent Jesus is with us. We know that the risen Lord Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand. And yet there is an element of when we gather together as a church, God is present with us to bless. I do think that this is sobering, that this God dwells in us through his spirit. This God is in our midst as we gather. So the exhortation was for his people to see him in their trials, in their suffering, in their temptation, to see Jesus for who he is, to see his glory and to see his grace. And so I just want to ask you this this morning as you enter some trial, as you're going through whatever temptations, as you feel weak, as you feel uncertain about decisions you have to make, God is God and God is for his people. If you are his people, if you are his child, you can say God is God, God is for us, God is for me. Christ is king and Christ cares. When you lack strength, he says, I have strength. Come to me, I'll give you my strength. You lack wisdom. He says, I know. I know all things. Come to me. I will give you wisdom. I will guide you and direct you. You lack the resolve to make the right decision you know you ought to do. He says, I have that ability. I will give it to you. I'll provide for you and what you need. When you lack love, to love those who are hard to love, he loves. He is love. And he says, I will give it. I will provide it. I think these are just a few ways to step out what it means. To see him with faith means to to acknowledge who he is in this vision and also to live in accordance to what it it shows us. And so I pray that we would do that. And I will pray that we would do that just here to close. Lord, we praise you. There's many things that we could listen to many books that we could read, many ideas and philosophies and stuff out there that we could set our minds on. But I thank you and I praise you that we have your word and we have this picture of you in the book of Revelation to look to. Jesus, we praise you. And I ask that we would, this morning and day by day, Lord, that we would look to you, that you would turn our eyes that you'd give us what we need to walk faithfully with you. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the church. Thank you that we have the good gift of gathering together, that we see your work in others. We see what it means to walk faithfully in other people. Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another with words. We'd encourage one another with our lives. And Lord, we, we pray for your spirit. Lord, enable us and strengthen us today in this year, to walk faithfully with you. We ask all this for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.